0: Welcome to the Chip Warriors podcast, celebrating America's semiconductor pioneers, their stories, their voices. The technology they invented in the second half of the 20th century has given the United States a secret weapon in the Cold War of the 21st century. In Episode 2, The First Chip War, those on the front line in the semiconductor battle with Japan in the 1980s recall their experiences and how America eventually prevailed.
1: The next thing I know, I'm down in Washington with my attorneys, and I'm being questioned by various congressmen. And they say, uh, do we understand correctly that you have technology that is unique to your company, unique to this country, special technology needed for the semiconductor industry? And I said, absolutely correct. Well, wouldn't you be doing this country a disservice If this deal were to occur, I said, absolutely.
2: The deal in question did not involve China. This was the 1980s, and the U.S. was in a trade war with Japan. Shelley Winnig, who founded Materials Research Corporation, or MRC, in the late 1950s, couldn't find a U.S. buyer for his company. So he turned to Sony, the Japanese electronics giant. The concern in Washington at the time was that Japan, which had overtaken the U.S. in consumer electronics and autos, would do the same in semiconductors. Fast forward 35 years and America faces a similar threat from China. But there are important differences. While Japan in the 1980s was considered an economic threat, it was nonetheless a U.S. ally and a democracy. China under communist rule is seen by Washington as a triple threat, economically, militarily, and ideologically. Yet, Japan and China do share a common trait when it comes to their technology development. After decades of chaotic rule under Mao Zedong, China was desperate for Western technology to create jobs and stimulate economic growth. Japan was in a similar position at the end of World War II. Richard Elkus Jr. ran the AMPex division that developed the first home video recorder. In the 1970s, he traveled to Japan to find manufacturing partners for AMPex.:
3: The Japanese who were trying to build a country after World War II, where they basically were basically trying to feed themselves, they were looking for some kind of a scalable industry that would launch a nation uh, into, uh, to f- fill a vacuum. Uh, that was left after World War II where there was no food, there was no energy, there was no nothing. And they decided that there were certain types of manufacturing that they could do in mass quantities, not the least of which was audio recording tape decks. And as Japan built up its infrastructure in audio, and that went to video, and then it went into cameras, and it went into lenses and television sets, it began to build up an integrated infrastructure that wasn't just consumer business. It literally was information technology and began to overwhelm the existing businesses in the United States. It turned out that the VCR became the largest single user of semiconductor devices of any product in the world at that time because the computer was just getting started. The PC was just getting started. So it so happened that as Japan began to dominate the field of video recording, as they had in audio recording, they also began to dominate whole sectors of the market for semiconductors.
2: Shigeo Takayama witnessed the development of the Japanese semiconductor industry from its inception. In 1953, he established Hakuto Company, which is still operating today. Semiconductor was
4: not very well uh, known there in Japan. Japan was behind the United States and others. The United States taught Japan many technologies in semiconductor businesses. And of course, Japan worked like hell in order to compete against the world uh, market. And so they studied very, very hard uh, in the transistor and many of the semiconductor areas. uh, But it took some time for them to come up. It took maybe about 10 years or more. LSI has been started up in Japan by the government support and also industry to work on the research of LSI. That was the beginning of the bank coming up with the uh, semiconductors. The semiconductor equipment uh, manufacturing was very difficult for the Japanese uh, uh, suppliers because equipment is very difficult to for service. And the servicing is very important for the users. Therefore, what they did was to bring in the suppliers, the uh, sem- semiconductor equipment manufacturer, into their plant to tell them what is the purpose of this equipment to do. So their working relationship between the Japanese suppliers of the equipment and also semiconductor manufacturers together so that the manufacturers of the equipment know what the purpose of doing this or doing that is taught. And services done mostly by the chip manufacturers and taught them how to do, how to manufacture the equipment to suit the manufacturing
2: of the semiconductors. Sam Harrell worked for Texas Instruments in the 1960s. He saw firsthand how Japanese companies came to dominate in semiconductor manufacturing.
5: In the 60s and even into the early 70s, the Japanese equipment and facilities were inferior, but their attention to detail and their, their um, attention to the detail of data was superior. They improved faster. They were not satisfied with less than the best they could figure out how to do. They had a superior, unrelenting drive toward improvement. And eventually, that paid off for them. In Texas Instruments' case, we did a joint venture with Sony as their beginning entree into Japan. The equipment equipment was available to them. They paid royalties under the patent licenses, but the second half of the question, which is improvement, they were really good at improving the equipment. In fact, the most important things we did were to get access to all the improvements they made, because they made good improvements. <laughs> they, they did a really good job. Now, they also had very low cost of money. You know, when your cost of money in a In a business that's very capital-intensive, is near zero, then you have some striking advantages. Every generation, you just go do a new factory. When there's a better equipment, you just buy it because your cost of money is so low. In the U.S. at those times, the cost of money was very high, and that was a distinct advantage the Japanese had.
2: Papkin Der was CEO of Silicon Valley Group when he negotiated a joint venture with Japanese giant
6: Canon. Typical Japanese relationship is you form a joint venture in Japan, you own 50 50. Americans supply the technology, Japanese provide the money and the market distribution in Japan. And within four or five years, Japanese engineers are much more detail oriented and they enhance the machine. They are much, they they are really, really, their attention to detail is much better than ours. They enhance the machine, it becomes a more robust, better machine, and then then they come back and they say, Look, guess what? You have enhanced it now, we own part of it. Your royalty is lower because your part of the royalty is only a smaller part, which is true. In
2: 1991, Applied Materials CEO Jim Morgan co authored a book called Cracking the Japanese Market. The groundwork for that achievement began with company founder Mike McNeely.
7: And, uh, 68, late 68, we'd had a number of inquiries from Japan about uh, from rep, potential reps in Japan, and I just recall it that that at that time we were there, were, there weren't many orders. We were trying to expand the business. By, uh, that by the Japan was uh, was a fertile market. Uh, there was a lot of interest over there. So I went to Japan in, in 68 by myself and um, interviewed Kanematsu Gosho. Tokyo Electronic Labs and a third potential rep. It was really funny because when I went, at that time I had a mustache and uh, I had uh, wore cowboy boots every once in a while and they were very comfortable and I remember getting on the plane and my daughter, uh, before I went to went to Japan where I was all excited about going as usual and, and uh, I asked my daughter to put my dress shoes in my suitcase and she forgot. So I spent, you know, Two weeks in Japan, six-foot-four on two-inch cowboy boots <laughs> and a mustache. And, uh, so it was, it was a great trip. And um, made the decision, uh, visited all the companies and uh, major companies, and decided on Kanematsugosha when I came back.
2: MRC's Shelly Winnick tried an unusual strategy to break into the closed Japanese market.
1: One day I read in the papers that they're, uh, they're going to change the law. And that you can now have an operation in Japan without having a majority or a certainly equal Japanese owner. So I get on my horse and get over there. We had used a PR agency in Tokyo for the semi-show in Tokyo. And I called that agency. And I said, look, I'm, I'm you know, I'm stuck. I need help. And what I would like you to do is to develop a press conference for me at the American Club in Tokyo and invite as many newspaper people as you can in because I want to present the message here. My message was very simply that what I have, you need. Therefore, why why should there be obstacles to my coming here? In fact, what I should see are large signs saying, welcome. Bottom line, within weeks... I had four letters from four governors in four different prefectures on the island of Kyushu, which they were trying to turn into Semiconductor Island. I went back over there and visited all four. I had sumptuous banquets. I was treated very well. I was told what they could do. And I chose Oita Prefecture, which is in the northeast corner and not too far from Oita Airport. And I chose that as a place to build the plant. The problem was, what are you going to use for money here? On the land, the prefecture made a deal. So, okay, I've solved the land problem. Now, it's how do you get the building? And you know, they said, well, if you were a Japanese company, you'd go to the Japan Development Bank. Long story short, it took six months. Uh, my, my CFO... Uh, always used to tell a story that when he went over there, he had a nice head of brown hair, and at the end of six months, he had white hair. We were going nuts. You just never got an answer. You kept being asked for more and more and more information. And finally, I sent a cable to my uh, American employee who was in Japan trying to organize this thing. And I said, Tell the Japan Development Bank that I'm coming over this Monday for the finalization meeting. And I was met at the airport by a couple of guys from the Japan Development Bank. And the first thing out of their mouths were, what is a finalization meeting? I mean, they, they, they can't stand being in the dark, you know. Um, and I, I put it to them very bluntly. I said, we've been at this for six months. And I would like to know this week. Either we're getting the loan or we're not getting the loan and I'll go on with my life and you go on with your life. People always ask me, well, was this enough money to build a plant? No. JDB doesn't give you an enormous amount of money. What they really do is they stamp your rear, you know, you're kosher, you're okay, and it opens all kinds of doors. Suddenly banks will do business with you. Suddenly insurance companies will do business with you. In other words... You can now move ahead. Anyway, we go on to build that plant, and it was, it was a, just a great, fascinating experience.
2: McNeely and Winnick helped pave the way for others, like Lamb Research founder David
8: Lamb. In 1981, when I was launching my first product, it was clear that in the whole world, there were only two geographic markets, the U.S. and Japan. There was very little in Europe, there was nothing in Taiwan, practically, and nothing else in the rest of Asia. So immediately I realized that the market was roughly 50-50 between Japan and the U.S. If I were only focused on the U.S., at best I would get 50% of the market. That was not good enough. So I tried to figure out a way to get into Japan. Now. I also have visited Japan, I've learned a little bit about the country, and I realized that given their culture, it is uh, very difficult for a small, unknown company from California to try to sell to the big chip companies in Japan. So it became very, very clear from the very beginning that I need to team up with a large company in Japan to market our product. Now, unfortunately, Tel has already got a product they were representing. So it took me quite a while to really work through the process, to convince them that we have a product that they should consider and they should make a change of the supplier they represent. So it took me a little while. But one of the things that was in our favor was that after the first few conversations, Tel decided to sent a team of engineers to come visit LAM Research in Santa Clara. The first team that came in was not salespeople, was not process engineers, they were equipment maintenance engineers because they were very concerned about reliability in the field because they got stuck in supporting the customer once we have sold the equipment. So that was a, a very important point on their checklist So we passed with flying colors because that was my driving um, point in in launching the product because all the automation and other things really to make it more reliable and repeatable. I went to Japan many, many times to go with the salespeople to visit customers and it went quite well. Uh, But a couple of years later, we realized that perhaps at some point in time, we would want to do some more locally in Japan to serve the customers. So uh, that was the beginning of the idea of a joint venture. Uh, the product uh, that we shipped to Japan was over time going to be made in Japan with whatever ma- modifications that we see fit to make the Japanese customers happy. And, uh, and that was the Telam, the joint venture was formed, I think about 83 or 84.
2: Jim Bagley ran the capital equipment business at Texas Instruments before he joined Applied Materials.
9: By 1987, I was made president of Applied in the the fall of 87. At that time, 45% of our business was in Japan. And we had a loose confederation with our subsidiary in Japan. We couldn't ever get it neatly tied up so it acted like it was an integral part of the company. It was all, They always wanted to do a uh, IPO on the Japanese market because at the time, given their profitability and their size and the difference in multiples on earnings for, for stock, they were actually more valuable than the parent company. I decided I'd move the president's office to Japan. So I moved it to Narita, which is where we had built a facility. Every two weeks or so, I would fly back to the U.S., and I'd stay a while, and then I, a week maybe, and then I would fly back to Narita. I spent my time trying to solve the, the communications and interaction between the two organizations. The Japanese would have a problem at a customer. They would call Santa Clara. Santa Clara's gone home for the night, uh, and so you would... Uh, it, then they would come in and, of course, the Japanese are gone. And so you had this two-hour window or so where you could communicate with Japan. And so one of the things I instituted is that the Japanese had to work a night shift. Technical people had to work a night shift. And so did the U.S. So that we had uh, a kind of around-the-clock communication. Then I had all corporate meetings in Japan and made everybody fly from the United States into Japan so that we could have a corporate meeting. So we had all our forecast reviews, everything in Japan. And uh, that was probably the smartest thing I fell into. I mean, I claim credit for this brilliance, but however it happened, it was really good because it began to help everybody understand how difficult it was for a Japanese field engineer who had one of our etchers and it's, in, it's not working in Toshiba, and our Japanese uh, field people were treated miserably, and no one would give them any information. They'd just say, fix this problem, it's doing this, and we need to get this fixed. When you'd send an American over, it was completely different. So we started trying to inject a lot more Americans into Japan in order to improve the communications and the speed with which we were solving problems. And we did quite well. We continued to grow sharing, in Japan had a very uh, successful business in Japan for years.
2: Ed Siegel worked in sales and marketing for many years before starting a distribution company for Japanese semiconductor equipment.
10: One thing that was always pretty hilarious in Japan was that you better learn pretty quickly how to say I'm sorry because uh, it's very important in Japanese culture to, to apologize when you, you weren't exactly perfect. And a lot of American companies and any company that was making semiconductor equipment uh, was not made, making the highest reliability machines there were. They, they, they tried to invent them quickly and get them shipped quickly, and they paid the price for it by by doing that. And so we would go into customers, and I learned that, that gomenasai means I'm sorry, and I said it many times. Most of the Japanese, uh, even today, would tell you that, that uh, Japan, uh, maybe it's because of the discipline in Japan, was never as... Uh, Strong as the United States in innovation. And yet uh, they always thought that we were pretty good at innovating but not good at at, uh, being able to manufacture. And I think the United States certainly showed uh, a lot because of the basic comeback it made after the 80s when the Japanese were such a fierce competitor and everybody thought Japan was going to take over the world. The Japanese were very intent on learning what they could about uh, manufacturing semiconductors. And if you look at the memory business, in the, in the 80s, I mean, they, they overtook it. Uh, Hitachi and Toshiba and Fujitsu. Um, and uh, those were years when, when our U.S. companies were, Mostec who's a name from the past in this business and was a leader in the memory business early on. Uh, TI was very big in the memory business, and Intel's original game, game plan was to be strong in memories.
2: Robert Palmer felt the brunt of Japanese competition. He was on the founding team in Mostec,
11: There was a time when Intel and Mostec uh, were probably the leading DRAM manufacturers in this country, and then the Japanese started getting into the business. The Japanese uh, came at the United States market with circuits that had higher reliability, and uh, there were a number of reasons for that, but one of them was that they were not pushing the lithography as hard as we were here, but there were other reasons, and that was a good wake-up call for us. There were a lot of intellectual property uh, battles between uh, Japan and the United States about um, technology and dumping and any number of other issues. And fortunately, it was all resolved uh, eventually, uh, not without some pain, in such a way that, you know, the customers benefited, technology continued to advance. And the DRAM business, though, uh, became really uneconomic for a while. And new companies were started. Uh, Micron is one that comes to mind. That uh, several of the founding members of Micron Technology actually had come from Tech, and they'd been That's where they got their early training in uh, integrated circuit design and process technology.
6: You know the famous uh, uh, Public statement by Hewlett Packard By a guy that I worked for Dick Anderson Who basically made public saying that DRAM manufacturers in Japan have a better quality than DRAM manufacturers in America, which shook up the American industry because System manufacturers need a good, qualified supplier wherever it comes from. It doesn't matter. And many of the semiconductor guys over in America were not making quality products.
2: Intel was another American DRAM company beaten by Japanese competition. Gordon Moore recalls the challenges.
5: The concern, of course, was that the Japanese were going to expand from there and take over the entire equipment industry. And then we got concerned that we wouldn't have the access to it that we had with you know, other suppliers. So that became increasingly our paranoia as the Japanese were making increasing inroads into the whole semiconductor industry.
2: Brad Matson wasn't able to crack the Japanese market with his first company, Novellus, but he did succeed with his second company, Matson Technology.
9: There was a, I'd say, a divergence. on on the growth rates between uh, Novellis and and Matson, in that the major success was Matson was in Japan. And it was kind of disappointing for me that we didn't have more success in the United States. The Japanese equipment suppliers at one time in the 80s, everyone thought they were going to take over the world because they also, everyone believed that the Japanese semiconductor industry was going to win. There was market share showing US coming down, Japan going up, Uh, it was a very common market share curve. Through the 80s, uh, and everyone believed they had a very strong by Japan, by Japan attitude there. They were developing the strongest equipment infrastructure in the world besides the United States. So I'd say this was quite a challenge.
2: Japan's rapid ascent in semiconductors was a wake up call. In 1987, Congress approved funding for a consortium of device and capital equipment makers. It was called Semiconductor Manufacturing Technology, or SEMITEC. Papkinder Torosian was involved on the equipment side. He worked with executives like Tech's Robert Palmer on the device side.
6: In the 83-84 time frame, Japanese manufacturers, primarily the big ones like Hitachi, NEC, Toshiba, invested very heavily in capital. So by 84-85, they had dominance of the DRAM business. Sematech's goal was to enhance American competitiveness, the American semiconductor industry. Well, you can't enhance the semiconductor industry without enhancing the equipment industry that, that, in, that makes the products and the processes.
11: I was one of the founding members of Sematech, and Sematech uh, was uh, essential, in my view, to making it possible for the manufacturers to make a living. Sematech enabled us all to work together, even though we were fiercely competitive in the marketplace, but enabled us to work together with the uh, manufacturers of equipment so that they had a fair chance of, of meeting the majority needs of the industry and, and thereby being able to you know spread their costs over a large number of relatively standard machines so that everything became much more affordable, much more efficient. It was difficult to do. Uh, there were issues about um, competitiveness, antitrust issues that had to be solved. There were technology issues. So just how do you get people from all of these different companies to come and work in a uh, collaborative way uh, when in fact they'd been competitors. But we sent scientists and engineers to work together. And I think, fortunately, uh, with the leadership that Bob Noyce provided early on, uh, we forced or drafted, twisted his arm, uh, so that he would take on the first chairmanship of Sematech, And he just did a wonderful job of creating an atmosphere where people could come and be successful.
2: America won the chip war with Japan, but the threat from China has spurred U.S. lawmakers into action again. A bipartisan bill was introduced to support chip manufacturing on U.S. soil with proposed funding of more than $20 billion. If America had lost its lead in semiconductor process technology to Japan, today's efforts to bring chip making back to the homeland would be far more difficult, if not impossible. Dick Elkis Jr. explains why.
3: I think the semiconductor equipment business is the most strategic business in the United States of America. It It's impossible to build a semiconductor device, and therefore almost any other product or market in this world, without the advancements in the semiconductor capital equipment industry. And my feeling is that were we to lose the semiconductor equipment business for whatever reason, the cascading effect over almost every other industry we've got would be terrible.
0: Thank you for listening to The Chip Warriors, written and produced by Craig Addison, based on interviews he conducted between 2004 and 2008. These interviews were licensed from SEMI, which is not affiliated with this podcast. Be sure to check out Episode 3, Losing Lithography, How the US Invented Then Lost the Most Important Part of the Chip Making Process. And please support this project by subscribing to the Premium Episodes.